На трибунах олеют знамена, Облака под небесни плывут. На зеленом ковре стадиона Разноцветные майки цветут. Hello and welcome back to the Russian Football News Podcast. While we record just before Siska plays Wolfsburg in Austria, we've got three Champions League games to cover and some quick kicks of recent and upcoming RPL action too. Joining me this week once again is Richard Pike. Good evening, everybody. How are we all? I'm not too bad, because this time we've got back again the host of whatever this is and the one-words tweet aficionado, Hanu Trevedi. Hi, guys. Hi, James. Hi, Richard. Thanks for the introduction, James. Um, as, of, <laughs> as of late, I've been typing more paragraphs than words because of how terrible the teams I support are. But um, I'll, I'll be back to the one words very soon, hopefully. Yeah, and as those who are listening listening out now can hear, is in the title, of course, this week is Zenit versus Zenit. Are they possibly frauds or not? And we'll get onto that a little bit later and discussing teams that Hanu supports who are not doing the best right now. But if we're on little brighter pastures, we'll start off with the most recent of these three European midweek games. As Lokomotiv Moscow travelled to Salzburg and picked up a very respectable shock 2-2 draw with Red Bull Salzburg themselves. Now to quickly run through the game first, Loco took a surprise lead through the most unlikely of sources, as the whatever-this-is Hall of Meme inductee Ede actually managed to get a header on target for once and somehow scored. Now they were pegged back just before half-time thanks to a wonderful equaliser from Dominic Shabzalai. Then regular service resumed within five minutes, as former Bremen man Zlatko Junozovic got on the end of a great Patson Dakar pass and put Red Bull ahead. Loco, however, did not give up and a goal 15 minutes in time from the impressive Vitaly Lasakovic levelled affairs. Now, the fake team energy drink advert football club may not be one of the elite names in the groups, but they are one of the most lethal pot three sides to draw and are both talent, quite talented young sides and effective, very efficiently ran football club. So this is an excellent away point for Loco and there's no doubting that. Now, I personally predicted a 2-0 victory for Salzburg in my preview that's on the site. And I must admit, I'm pretty happy to be proven so wrong. Hanu, what's your take on the game? So are you surprised by Ede scoring? I mean, of course, I am surprised by their scoring, but I feel like I think, um, like you and like like almost everyone else in the Russian football community, I feel like I was perhaps too harsh on Lokomotiv and their chances because I, on the podcast, on our podcast, on your podcast, we've basically been incessantly memeing Lokomotiv about how they're going to finish with zero points, can see thirty-five goals and stuff like that. But I think I have to apologize and say that. Nikolic, now I've been saying this before and I've said it a lot, is that Nikolic is better than Semen for Lokomotiv in the current day. And I think that despite their squad not being the best, I think, yeah, they've got Adair and, and Kiknadze is a bit of a meme, but I have to say, and to hold my hands up, I feel like on the pitch at least they are doing a lot of lot of things right. Um, of course, I didn't expect Adair to score. I mean, he does have a bit of a penchant for scoring important goals. So I guess, you know, fair play to him. But uh, it, it is it is a huge point for Lokomotiv, and I think um, credit to them. I, I saw a couple of um, couple of sequences, couple of uh, clips on on Twitter where they really seemed like a, a Champions League side, a respectable Champions League team. And I hope they can keep that up. I hope they can. I still think they'll finish last, but I mean that's just because of how tough the group is. But if they can if they can be respectable against the bigger teams, if they can um, not not get battered, and if they can show some some more strong-willed performances like this, and I think they have every right to be proud of themselves. Yeah, certainly. I echo that entirely. That It's a, the pride that is the real redeeming factor out of this, and it's more so a discussion on how good the other teams are that they would be so happy to get a point away to Red Bull Salzburg. I don't mean that by any disrespect to either side, but the three teams that are in the group are just a class above locomotive right now. And to get anything from this is, is a success. Now, we all did write them off, and I think rightfully so. Everybody wrote them off, but maybe because of that, there is zero pressure on Loco. There's, they can go out there. They've lost the best player in the summer. They lost a legendary manager, rightly or wrongly. He was a legend in the eyes of the fans. The fans are very angry at the time. So they they were feeling pretty rock bottom for a while, despite performing relatively well. I mean, with the one four in a row in the, domestically. So there's absolutely zero pressure on this UCL performance. So, Richard, on the back of that, do you see local potentially pulling off some more shocks or was this a little bit of an outlier? I mean, in terms of being an outlying result, possibly. Uh, however, in Lokomotiv's defence, uh, that display has, has given me and everybody else at RFN and um, in the Russian um, English language Russian football community 
and you know, in Russia themselves as well, some more hope than before for them. You know, um, I mean, I still expect, like Hanu, I still expect them to finish bottom of the group. Um, however, I fought the game against Salzburg. I watched the second half of it and I caught some um, highlights just re- of all the game just recently. And um, I thought that in that game, it was a performance of real character from them. Uh, they were disciplined, didn't panic when going behind. And um, and as you both said, uh, and um, as you said, they were unlucky with the second goal, which was a deflection. Uh, and then there's nothing they can do about the first goal too. It was a, a complete worldie from um, Sobsalai. Um, but, you know, and I agree with Hanu here. I, I believe Marko Nikolic deserves a lot of credit personally. Uh, in my opinion, he's getting the most out of this group of players than any other manager of any top Russian team at this moment in time. Let's not forget he's had it, he's had it really rough since taking over. You know, he's had to replace a club legend like Suman, as you were just saying, James. Um, and then he loses his star man, Alexei Moranchuk. And I mean, to add a third complication onto, on top of those two things, he also loses one of his other really top players in Dmitry Barinov to an ACL injury. He's not going to come back till till March. Um, but overall, you know, he's he's knuckled down really well, got on with things, not complained, and he's now getting the most out of this squad of players, which he possibly can. And it's, it's a limited set. Um, but, you know, he's getting the most out of them. Um, you know, the next game's a bit of an eye-opener, isn't it, against Bayern Munich <laughs> at home? Yeah. They're probably going to have to never mind park a bus, park a truck in front of the goal and try and get a point somehow. But, um, but no, it was pleasantly surprising against Salzburg. They hung in well. Salzburg had a few good chances, but not as many really clear-cut ones I was expecting them to carve out. I thought Loco kept their attacking threats in check pretty well. Um, and a good game by Guilherme, which, you know, um, it's a bit of a surprise given that he's not not a, exactly our cup of tea at RFN. But um, no, a pleasantly surprising result. And um, it does actually give Loco a very slight chance of finishing third in this uh, absolutely wicked Champions League group. I mean, I still think they'll come bottom, but at least uh, the performance was um, an honourable one, let's just say. Yeah, and you mentioned there, Richard, uh, Daniil Kulikov, who's... Uh, sorry, you mentioned Dima Baranov, who was, of course, out with the ACL injury, and he picked that up in the Spartak match when things started to get a little bit rocky for Nikolic and for Loco after such a good start. Now, he obviously was, was out last uh, on Wednesday night, and Daniil Kulikov, 22-year-old defence midfielder, took his place. And I think Kulikov deserves quite a lot of credit for his performance. He was matured. He, he obviously had a, quite a limited job of just limiting the opposition, getting the ball to Krakowiak. It wasn't much more beyond that, but he did perform out of that. He performed better than that. And he's only got seven starts in his, in his entire senior career since making the, the jump up from Lokomotiv's farm team, uh, local Kazanka. So uh, I think Kulikov can be very, in, very enthused by his performance and what is his European debut. And another man whom I must admit I am loath to 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 say this, but Guilherme had a very solid game between the sticks. Now, in in my preview, I, I asked you mentioned that I think he could be a key player in this in that fixture. Obviously, he's a goalkeeper, but he's that he's more likely to make a costly error and a massive cock up than he is to pull off a worldy save. Now, he pulled off seven saves, and to be fair, he could do like you said, Richard. He could do very little about civilized brilliant equaliser or the deflection for the second. So, Hanu, do you rate the nationalised Russian? Or, like me, do you think he's the most overrated goalkeeper in the RPL? I feel like I don't I don't have much of an opinion on Gilherm. Honestly, I don't um, I don't know of many people that rate Gilherm as... I think people have just come to terms with the fact that he's a naturalised guy. He plays for Lokomotiv and he is, you know, he's just a... He's a player that doesn't strike or that doesn't uh, fill anybody with excitement. He's not a player that you. He's not the best goalkeeper in the league. He's far from it. And I think uh, credit to him for for this performance. I think it's it's a good performance. I don't think it changes my perception of Gilherm by much. I think he's still a solid goalkeeper. Nothing to rave about too much. Nothing to you know. Not not a player that should be. Criticized day in day out. I think I think he's a, a a decent enough player, and I think you have to give him credit for his good performances. And like you said, the Salzburg game was one of them. So I think you know, fair play to him for pulling off seven saves. It was probably one of the better performances of any local player on there, maybe along with Nesakovic and um, what's his name, Anton Miranchuk. So yeah, I mean, yeah. Fa- fair play to uh, Gilan. 
Yeah, yeah, I really liked Marantrick's performance. He he actually picked up uh, Loco's September Player of the Month, and and he didn't either. He didn't actually score at all during September when a lot of players. I think they had six different goal scorers in what five games, all stepping in for Marantrick's departure. And Mar- Anton wasn't one of them players, but in every single match, he was the creative fulcrum. He was the one that drove them forward. He's moved in from the wing into a, cent- a central attacking midfield role and stepped out of his brother's shadow somewhat. And I actually feel sorry for Antoshka because right now you can't mention how well he's playing without the caveat of Lyosha leaving and so on. But if he keeps continuing performing to the level that he is, it'll only be so long where you can finally separate the two, just like they have been physically separated. Richard, who else stood out for you in the game? Um, I thought... Based on what I watched, I was really impressed with the way uh, Lisa Kovic um, came on in the second half and I felt he did really well when he came on. Um, wasn't the best goalkeeper from the Salzburg keeper for Loco's equaliser, but you know he was he was there and he, he took his chance. I also quite liked the little cameo from Kamano, you know. I thought, you know, there's a couple of times when he was beating the um he was beating the um the right back of Salzburg, um, taking him on a few times. I'd like to see, I know Nicholas said in his post-match press conference that um, Kamano's still not fully fit, but I hope when they get him fit, they can find the form that he was showing at Bordeaux two, three seasons ago. Because I say three seasons ago, he was being linked with Liverpool and Arsenal, Kamano, two, three seasons ago. So they can find that form. You know, he could be a a real asset for them. On the wings, they've got some good players, Ribchinski, you know, a few others. Um, So, yeah, um, hopefully they can integrate Zeloish into the squad soon. Thought the defence held firm well. Guillaume had one of his um, better games. The defence held firm well too. Uh, held firm too. And like you were saying, yeah, about Kulikov, he, he's not had many starts. But, you know, alongside Magkayev now, Stanislav Magkayev, they've got another decent young um, defensive midfield player there. So there's options now for, for Loko and Nikolic too. And um, so, yeah, um, Lisakovic uh, made an impression on me. Um, felt he played well. And to echo your thoughts, um, Anton Moranchuk too. Um, so yeah, uh, some promising signs for them. Yeah, so if we move on, next up we're going to be travelling to France, and where Krasnodar themselves did with a severely depleted squad and backroom staff. First of all, Murad Masahiev stayed in Russia to deal with an angina problem. Captain Alexander Martinovich, Victor Klaassen and Wanderson were all injured, while Remy Cabela had undergone an inconclusive COVID test and was thus quarantined. New signings, Alexei Ionov and Yevgeny Markov, weren't included in the squad list for Europe, with Markov himself also having an inconclusive test anyway. And thus the Bulls started without, with four full-backs on the pitch as Christian Ramirez stepped up in the left wing and Igor Smolnikov on the right. And then, of course, Sergei Petrov, as ever, played right-back, while new signing Yevgeny Chernov made his European debut at left-back. And Krasnodar were under the cosh for most of the game, I think it would be fair to say. Ren played some excellent stuff, led by 17-year-old star prospect Eduardo Eduardo Camavinia. Uh, But Christopher Olsen was influential in a deep-lying role. He really controlled the game nicely for Krasnodar, and I think he's getting better and better in that deepest role in the the Krasnodar team that you used to see Gazinski play week in, week out. Olsen's got the nod over Gazinski and has made it his own. And while the defence generally looked very solid, they went in the break level, however... On the 56th minute, Caio and Yego Sorokin had another one of those moments in the box as they both made a combination of errors and the and the, the former took down Martin Terrier and gave away a penalty, which was duly dispatched by Sertu Garassi. But then, just a minute later, Tony Vilhena released Ramirez, who levelled the tie. Krasadar then went on to soak up even more pressure and sat back for large swathes of the game, with Matvey Safanov making a series of brilliant saves and what was a man-of-the-match performance. And in the end, they drew 1-1, which is a thanks to the basically aforementioned Safanov and putting in a brilliant performance as he and Sergei Petrov look to have picked up injuries in what could be a little bit of a pyrrhic, but well-deserved and solid point. So Richard, first this time, Safanov's got to be the man to discuss here. What did you think of his performance? Indeed, James, yes. Um, I thought he, he handled the pressure of a big game like that 
really, really well. You know, it was difficult circumstances, as we said, with all the injuries and players missing for Craster there. But I thought he handled that performance really well. With regards to him, it was a super performance. Um, very composed, did what he had to do, um, some good saves, and was a key component in Craster's uh, result, which, you know, was pleasantly surprising. We were, I mean, I did say on the last pod, it, I was trying to put my optimistic head on and say a 1 1 draw. I said, I said that with a bit of, uh, let's just say, a bit of fear as well as um, optimism. But um, no, Craster, you know, came out of France with a very, very good point there. And, um, you know, he needed to play well Safanov to, you know, for Krafta to get anything from that game. And um, he did just that, you know. Um, we mentioned on past pods about him and Maxim and uh, Alexander Maximenko from Spartak being promised and yet, yet having mistakes in them. However, both of them this season, I think, are really, um, you know, ironing out those mistakes now. And uh, Russia's number one goalkeeping spot. He's now in very good hands going forward, in my opinion. So, so yeah, I thought he was he was a crucial component in Krasnodar's brilliant result, and um, hats off to him. What's so good about Safanov is that his maturity just belies his years. He looks really like a, a, play, a player who's performing well beyond his what, what is in reality a tender age. Now, talking about players who are mature beyond their years. Hanu, this is the first time that a lot of us in the Russian football community may have perhaps seen young Kamavinya in earnest, the, the Ren startlet, who's only 17, and God, he's an absolute baller. What did you think of his performance, Hanu? Well, it was it was quite interesting for me to get to see Kamavinga because um, Real Madrid have actually been very heavily linked to him. Um, it, I, this is probably a fun fact for most of you guys, but... Uh, there were only two clubs in Europe's top five leagues that did not spend a single penny and did not sign a single player. Those were Real Madrid and Valencia. And basically what uh, we've been told, what the fans have been told, that um, next summer we're going to sign Kamavinga, Mbappe and a couple of other players. So it's you know it's, it'll be very disappointing if we don't sign him. And looking at his performance, I think he would be phenomenal. At the age of 17, he's... Good, def- he's great defensively. He's wise beyond his years. He's got good positioning. He can create play. He was basically running the whole show, and I think mm. taking all of that into account, taking Ren's squad into account, it's also huge for Krasnodar to actually get a draw, playing with four full backs, not having any of their major attackers except for Marcus Berg. And I mean, Kamavinga is this phenomenal, phenomenal player. It's very rare for a player that young to be. We've seen, of course, we've seen players be this young and uh, turn out into nothing and not not go very far. But I think this guy he's got a different, just um, got a different vibe to him, and I think he will be at the very top uh, quite soon. Yeah, certainly, he's just got that air of confidence that around him, which really impresses me for somebody who's so young and has got such little genuine first-level experience. I mean, well, he has been playing for a while now, considering he's only 17. But his, his ability, his ball retention ability, his ability to just get out of spaces and find a teammate. I mean, he had a 95% pass accuracy rate against Krasnodar. He was just unbelievable. I've, I've, I don't want to hype him up too much, but it's been a while since I've seen somebody so young be so composed and just... It's like I say, belie the experience and, and uh, that's on his shoulders. It's so good to see. And unfortunately, it came against Krasnodar. So, Richards, Krasnodar will likely have Remy Cabela back for the next group game, which is at home to Chelsea. But they could still very well be without Klaassen, Wanderson, and now Safanov and Petrov as injuries basically mount more and more. Now, Safanov's injury reportedly came from near the end of the game in which he pulled off an excellent double save. And you can see he goes down awkwardly on his shoulder and there is quite a worry around the extent of that injury. And it's the Teflon nature of this of this Krasnodar squad comes back to bite them for the fourth time this season in the Champions League football and for the second year in a row. So do you think they can cope with this, with what what's quite a small squad? Well, I mean, having Kabea back, I think he's a good plus. Um you should definitely help them maintain possession uh, well against Chelsea, and let's face it, they're gonna they're gonna have to be able to do that because because you know Chelsea's attack is is on paper you know ridiculously good. You know if they click, uh, Havertz, Pulisic, Werner, and Mount, uh, you know they really could run riot against Krasnodar's defence. That's what I'm really worried about going into that game. Um, 
I think they'll probably try and play a little bit more cautiously against Chelsea due to this. And obviously, you know, as we've been saying with the injuries and and whatnot, um, the key will be keeping it tight, I think, for the first 30, 35 minutes of that game. Um, if they can keep it tight, increase the pressure on Chelsea, don't concede, then you never know. You know, it, it can just pinch a goal from somewhere. You know, Chelsea's defence has not been great. You know, West Brom and um, Southampton have both hit three goals against it. I'm, I'm certainly not a fan of some of their players in defence, like Kurt Zuma, for example. And, you know, there's been a few others. Christensen's not really developed either. So, you know, it's, Chelsea defensively are sort of a... Chelsea are kind of a double-edged sword, really. They've got a very good attack. And when it clicks, they'll they'll destroy teams in, in offence. But when it comes to de- uh, defensive duties, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure about them at all. So I think a point at home to Krastar, if, if Krastar could get it, you know, a point at home to Chelsea would be a brilliant, brilliant result for them. Um will give them a chance of finishing third ahead of Wren um, in the group. And and personally, as you as you guys were saying, as, as you and Hannah were saying, James, um, with the exception of Camavinha, who, you know, like you were saying, look, looks like he will be quite some player in the future. He's got a brilliant future going forward. I was actually not as impressed with Wren as I thought I was going to be, you know, considering to a side that come third in league gun. I really was expecting him to win that game against Krasnodar, especially with Krasnodar being depleted, you know. Um, so... Hopefully, everybody will be back fit for Krastar's, you know, home game against Wren later on March Day 5, you know, because that could could decide, you know, whether Krastar could edge ahead of them. I mean, you know, I still I still do expect them to probably come bottom of this group like Locomotive, but they've got a chance, you know, based on what I saw the other night. Good character from them. Um, just hopefully, hopefully the injuries aren't as bad as what, 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 what we're fearing and then, then they can get the key players back for that Wren game. Yeah, certainly. I mean, you do mention that Chelsea's attack is very good, but with their fat Frank the Fraud in charge, I don't know if they're going to be too much to worry about. No. <laughs> a joke, of course, a joke. Uh, that's, yeah, that attack yeah. is quite frightening. And the the key the key return for me would be Martinovic at the back. Martinovic, of course, is getting a bit on uh, on a bit now. Uh, he's at the wrong end of thirty five, coming up towards that. So his legs are starting to go, but when he plays, whoever's alongside him, it, they're just calmed down. He's such a calming influence, and whether it's Caio or Sorokin, mainly Caio, uh, those two together have made quite a few high-profile errors this season already. And it's, I mean, look, they're both young defenders, they're both ball-playing defenders, they will make mistakes now and again. And as they develop, as they get experience, like, and, and get become to the, towards the prime of the careers, like where Martinovic has been, then that will be rubbed out. But like you said, Richard, the, the sheer quality that's in that Chelsea attack, which has only been added to with players like Werner and Havertz, then I, I will worry if it is Sorokin and Caio because that mistake that they made, yeah. Uh, yeah. one each, one mistake each, that they both made at the same time was pretty poor at this level. And if you make that at Champions League level, you will be punished for it. So... Hanu, you famously are not a big fan of Masayev. And on last time you were on the podcast, you were kind of advocating m- meekly that he, he wouldn't be surprised if, he'd sat, if he was sacked and you could see it happening. Now, and how, did, how do you think that Masayev, well, set his team up? Because, of course, he wasn't there himself. And surely do you think Galitsky won't place too much pressure on him right now? Is is qualification in the next round their main focus, considering the sides they face and the injuries that they currently have? Well, I think I've been uh, quite explicit about my uh, my thoughts on Musaib, and I believe that he should have been sacked or at least should have been given last warning if Krasnodar didn't qualify for the Champions League, which they did. And I think for the time being, his job is safe, and I have no problem with it being safe because... I mean, they're not doing too well in the league. And I, of course, it's not going to be great if they finish outside the top five, top six, top four, whatever you consider to be the benchmark. But I think um, they lined up pretty well. They've, of course, even though Musai wasn't there, there was a there was a degree of um, maturity. The game management was quite better. And even, it's, it's not easy to have um, a lot of your, you know, key players out and, and still build a team that's capable. Like, it's not easy having four wing-backs and two of them are playing on the wings and you've got a, a very makeshift squad. So I think credit has to be due to, to Musaib over there. I'm still not 100% on his abilities as a manager. 
um, but I think perhaps I'm a bit too harsh over there but I think his job his job is fine and uh, I don't think Galitsky is, is looking for qualification to the to the next round I think he's fine with um, just getting to the Champions League and that's very fair so I think his job is safe I think it's safe for, for a fair reason getting to the Champions League and even getting a, a draw in the first game against a formidable opponent which other clubs in Russia have famously not managed to do is is good enough and I think um, he, he deserves to have the leeway and he, and he deserves to have you know the deserves to have some more time in the job at the very least yeah without a doubt and what I'm actually interested well, impressed by Messiah right now is obviously yeah, he wasn't at the match but it's he is in charge he is the one who picks the team who does the training this is his team it's the, what they were doing on the pitch is his vision and he's clearly learned from last year's difficult autumn in which they crashed out of the Champions League and then crashed out of the Europa League. And it's been a lesson for Masayev and mainly Krasnodar as a whole from Galitsky down in the training ground. And it's off the ball where they've developed so much. Now, last year, they didn't seem to be the greatest functioning off the ball structure. Where they had the usual 4-3-3 where they dominate the press high. but Krasnodar aren't a defensively focused team domestically. There's not often that they come up against sides, I mean, apart from maybe the odd game against Zenit, where they will be absolutely dominated and be on the back foot for a long time. And I'm not saying that these I mean, these are elite level players. I'm not saying that they don't know how to defend. But there, there is a way of going about things at this elite level. And they, he changed it up against Wren. It was more of a, like a compact 4-4-2 in defence where Ramirez and Smolnikov stayed narrow, stayed deep. They didn't go for the ball. They didn't go for the press. They waited and they they assessed their options, whether they could, would have to go and con- take control of the pass that would penetrate through the channels or go and push on to intercept or sit back and wait to go for the tackle. And I just thought it was a very mature performance with Krasnodar, of course, aided by having four fullbacks on the pitch. So <laughs> it is naturally more defensive. But that that four four two shape where it was bank of four, very high up, another bank of four, and then Utkin pushing right up next to Berg, really stopped a lot of Wren's uh, play from deep. And I thought it was a massive learning curve from how they played in the UCL qualifiers last season. So Richard, what what do you think about Masayev and Krasnodar's development? Yeah, just to echo your thoughts there, James, I think they're absolutely spot on. I think it's almost a bit like, you know, perhaps in the past we've possibly looked looked at Krasnodar and they probably reminded me a bit like Arsenal and the Wenger sometimes, you know, they were a bit naive defensively, perhaps off the ball, not doing as much as they should should have been doing, not quite doing the right things. But then, they, 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 but yeah, you're totally right. In the two games against Powak and against Wren, they've really matured on that sense. And um, hopefully, fingers crossed, they can carry on keeping it going, both domestically and in Europe going forward. Um, and yeah, they had they had to adapt. Like you said, they were playing four fullbacks, you know, uh, in that game. So they, they definitely had to adapt. And um, but yeah, nice to see some pragmatism um, coming in there. Obviously, you don't want to take away what they're very very good at, uh, which is the lovely smooth passing game that they do play when they get it going. But um, nice to see some pragmatism from Krasnodar. So, fingers crossed that uh, Masayev can keep learning and keep it going. Yeah, absolutely. And when I, when I say that they had the two flat four, banks of four, it wasn't like they were retreating into defensive lines and park the bus sort of thing. They were uh, pushed high up to and pushed their opponents back. And in the first half, Wren, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe Wren only really had three or four chances and they were all long shots outside the box. Now, of course, Kamavinga, I, I thought he played really well, especially for his age, but as a team, Krasnodar stifled Wren very effectively in the first half and that's why it stayed nil-nil at the break. And it's just such a shame that that one error was what cost them the three points because it could have been three points with the way the Safanov was playing late on when Krasnodar naturally tired and, and they started getting nervous and then they hit in the back of the mind and they were getting deeper and deeper. Well, then Safanov was just brilliant at the back as the last line of defence. So if it wasn't for that little mistake, then it could have been an even better result and absolute hats off to Masayev and, and these players because I did not see that coming, especially with the squad that was that was chosen on the day and the, the issues that they do have right now. So... 
on that bright and happy note, unfortunately, we're going to have to turn our attentions to Zenit. <laughs> now, they played Club Bruges and hosted them in St. Petersburg on Tuesday night and were pretty much heavy favourites to win. And on paper, in my opinion, should have done. But what is, in theory, never always happens in reality. And of course, to summarise the game, they started relatively brightly and I thought they were on top. Uh, Sardar Asmoon almost pounced on a spill from a mistake by Bruges' keeper. Uh, and then as the game wore on, the pace and tenacity of Bruges' play on the ball and then the press off it caused a cacophony of problems as Zanit's midfield. Uh, they couldn't simply keep up with the runners around them and Semak's decision to play a very narrow system isolated the full-backs and caused a myriad of issues at the back too. In the second half, Bruges ramped up the pressure towards the end and were unluck- even then they were unlucky not to go into the break already ahead. But they did take the lead eventually through Emmanuel Dennis. And the pace of Dennis and Diata and Clinton Mata down the right caused all sorts of problems. And that was particularly noticeable in the performance of Daniel Krugovoy, who's made his European debut, who I thought was put out of pasture a little bit. I thought Semak's tactics left him isolated far too often. Drusi was nowhere to be seen. And Krugovoy got dribbled past four times during the course of the 90 minutes, which you just can't, simply can't let that happen 1v1 in this elite level. And that's why they conceded both goals came down from that right-hand side. And I don't want to have a go at Krugovoy too much because I think he is a talented young lad and he's going to really develop. And it was really good to see him get the nod over Zhirkov. But if it wasn't for... I mean, even the goal when Denny scored, Rakitsky made two fantastic goal-line blocks. And there's absolutely nobody following the runner anyway. So it's not like it was just Krugovoy. There was issues beyond that. I don't want to hit on him too much. But of course, then 10 minutes later, Dejan Lovren let rip with an absolute steamroller from 30 yards out. I don't know about Alcumty in a second, Hanu, but I can't remember him doing that for Liverpool ever or Southampton. And the ball cannoned off the post, back off the head of Bruges keeper Horvath and then into the net. It was a stroke of luck, but one that the shot itself deserved. And then in the 93rd minute, disaster struck as Zenit conceded again, again from the right-hand side, a terrible lapse in defence. And Charles de Catalay was basically wandered into the box just to convert from close range, totally unmarked. Zuber and Asmoon were pretty poor up top and nothing could stick. And Zenit's big chances lay, largely came from long shots. For me, though, this loss is on Sergei Samak. It starts with, the book stops with him. Hanu, what did you think of Samak's approach to the game? And do you agree with some of the calls that we've seen to sack him that many Zenit fans are calling for across the country and particularly on social media? I think to understand the true gravity of how disappointing this loss was, we might we must look at the backstory. Because we were all live on air uh, streaming and we had Andrew Flint, we had David, we had a few other guys and we, we watched the entire club Bruce Zenit game. And when that second goal went in, the, the disappointment was just so palpable on the Skype call. Because it was like, of course, this was before the Krasnodar game, this was before the um, locomotive game. And everyone was sad again because it was another, it looked like it was going to be another season of excuses, another season of um, short-sighted football, another season of disappointment. And I do think that some of it has to be, not. I think more than some of it has to has to be, you know, Semak must hold some accountability for for that result because don't get me wrong, I, I love Sergei Semak. I think the squad atmosphere under him has been better than it ever has been at, at Zenit, especially under better than um, what was under a lot of those foreign managers. I think he's done great things at the club when it comes to domestic football. But I think he just, he gets his tactics wrong in Europe and because it seems like he doesn't have uh, a plan B when you know hoofing the ball up to uh, Zuba so he can he can bring it down for Asmoon doesn't work he doesn't have anything in the earlier part of his uh, tenure at Zenit he experimented with some five back formations some three back formations some other formations but because of reasons like the foreign limit because of the fact that Zenit's squad isn't as um, isn't as bloated or isn't as big as it used to be when, you know, in, in 2018, 19 or 1920. He just hasn't experimented and he relies on a 4-4-2, which clubs find it um, 
easier to exploit in Europe because they have a higher degree of uh, they, they have quite a few technical players they have pace the Russian league isn't exactly renowned for pace and it's just and I think the player should say, take some accountability as well because that second goal it was a classic case of, of, of a lapse of concentration I think uh, De Ketelaer found it way too easy to just tap in and I think I don't think calls for Semak to be fired right now are warranted I think that's very harsh but I think if Zenit failed to win the league and I think if they finish bottom in the Champions League again, I don't think, I think it'll be very hard for me to defend him and I think it would probably be a fair result, I think, if he loses his job. Yeah, if that was the case, I, I, I agree entirely. I do, I, I do I do want to say that at the start I did blame Semak and I, I do stand, I, I think he made errors. Bruges' threat comes down the wings. It's all pace. It's all counter. And everything was far too narrow. The 4-4-2 was almost a 4-3-1-2 at times. Krugovoy was isolated. Karavayev was isolated. Um, the midfield themselves, they weren't mobile enough. They weren't tracking enough for the runners from deep. De Ketelet was a runner from deep. Dennis was completely unmarked when he had three shots on goal. It was Drakitsky with two brilliant goal line clearances. And then the third one, I actually went in. Well, where were the men following these runners? So it's not just Semak. It was just a bad day overall for Zenit. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the, the foreigner limit because, once again, this foreigner limit is exactly what's limiting clubs in, in, in European competition. You've got some of the bigger clubs across Europe as a bit of a stockpile first teams and second teams where they go out and they go on a Tuesday, Wednesday night and play some of the biggest stars in the world. And then they go on a Saturday and then they've got a whole second team that they can just go and win. Now, Zenit nearly have that, but because of this eighth squad foreigner limit, they don't have, the they can't get the quality in to, to really compete, as you would expect. Hanu, what do you think? Yeah, I think the foreigner limit is, I've been debating it with myself in my own mind, and I'm very torn because I think even though the foreigner limit is draconian and it does hinder Russian clubs, I think we have to perhaps blame more than the foreign limit because I actually had a look at all the clubs that played in the Champions League over the, you know, the past two days and not many of them had more than eight foreigners in their starting eleven. Obviously, this we know that clubs in Russia have very little room to manoeuvre because of the foreigner limit, you can only have eight players and those eight players have to be your best players. Now, Zanit, I think, only played with six or five foreigners, so that does hold them back. But I think... I think a lot of the times, because we see smaller clubs, we see clubs like Dynamo Kiev and we see clubs that come from countries that, that have foreigner limits, that come from places that do not have as many foreigners in their um, teams and they still manage to perform better. So I think even though the foreign limit is hindering and hampering the overall development of Russian clubs, I think in certain circumstances it cannot be blamed. And I think that Club Bruges game even perhaps last Zenit's last UCL campaign, even CSK's last Europa League campaign, I think those are exceptions. I don't think the limit can be blamed on that. And I'd like to think what you guys think of that as well. Even though we're straying off topic a bit, I, I would because I'm, I'm still not sure on what I should think about it, honestly. Yeah, well, whenever I think of the foreigner limits, my uh, my comparisons are always edging towards Shakhtar Donetsk and our neighbor in neighboring Ukraine. Now, you mentioned Dinamo Kiev there. Dinamo have a foreigner limit, but Dinamo is entirely self-imposed. They want a Ukrainian core by Ukrainians for Ukrainians. And that's because their fans are some of the most racist fans in the world. <laughs> Let's yeah. not get beat around the bush here. They are horrific, the White Legion, the way they go on and everything else. But they didn't want Lechesky in because he's Shakhtar yeah. Linz, because he's not Ukrainian. Now, Shakhtar, the opposite. Shakhtar have always had this Brazilian core. Uh, the current teams, oh, well, when I, first, when I last checked, it was 44% Brazilian, 44% mm -hmm. Ukrainian, and then the rest from wherever else. And it's always been like that. It's always been a strong Brazilian contingent, a strong Ukrainian contingent. And the way that Shakhtar work would actually be unworkable in, in Russia right now because of the amount of Brazilians they have, because it includes people who are in the second team as well, and they've got more than eight. They've got twelve in the current for in the entire squad, and Shakhtar have reached the 
have won the UEFA Youth League in the last 10 years, have won the UEFA Youth League, have been a finalist in the Super Cup, of course, because they won the Europa League in 2009, a semi-finalist again in 2016 in the Europa League, a semi-finalist again in 2020 in the Europa League, a quarter-finalist in the Champions League in 2011 and 12. So they've got a record of highly successful European campaigns. And a lot of that is built upon, of course, intelligent running of the club, of very intelligent financial works. I mean, the scouting they've got in Brazil is second to none. Some of the players that are brought through, I mean, Douglas Costa, Fernandinho, Willian, Alano, Jadson, Alex Teixeira, and all the way down to even some who are a little bit dodgy, like Luis Adriano, have still walked that league and did a very good job for them. So it's not just because foreigners, but you can't you can't look past that the most successful Eastern European comp- club in modern European competition go towards this foreigner model, whereas all the rest of the leagues are trying to introduce these domestic-based models where it limits the amount of foreigners and legionnaires, and the the league as a whole suffers as a result. That's my take on it. I mean, I do see why they brought the limit in. I can understand why. I just don't agree with it. And now, instead of trying to put plasters over the issue, like naturalisation, like the UAEU becoming Russian citizens, instead of these little plasters of, oh, we don't have a good right back, right, make Mario Fernandez Russian. What about a backup keeper? Right, we'll make Guilherme Russian. Oh, we need Neustadter. Right, we'll make him Russian. Instead of doing that, just get rid of the limit. Then there's no issue. Then they don't have stockpiling players in certain positions. Then you don't have clubs who cannot compete at the highest level, even when they're on the top form in a really good run. So it's just limiting the Russian game as a whole in the long and the short term. And that's fair, yeah. Richard, I don't know if, do you want to come in here on Richard on Semak and perhaps the foreign limit as a whole? Yeah, um, I think with the foreign, I'll just quickly go on to the foreign limit. I think the ironic thing about all this is that the limit went up from six to eight. Um, and it, I do find it quite funny that the top clubs are, like I said in a pod a couple of weeks ago, they're a bit like Oliver Twist, they're going back to the Federation, they're asking for more. Um, I think the foreign limit should be lifted. I mean, I, 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 I generally do believe that. I feel that, you know, if you know, it would help also spur on domestic players. I always say that, you know, if you have a, um, a quota of some kind, it, it, it basically just uh, nash, um, players some you know, that, that country can get complacent, you know, because they know they're in the squad because they've got something there to protect them. So I, I, I think the foreign limit should be removed. However, what I will say is, is that um, I don't think the foreign limit has that much of an impact on Zenit against Bruges. I really don't. I think, like you were saying, James, I think this is on Samak. I really do think that that's the case. Um, I thought the first half was so tipid from Zenit. It really was. And considering this as, consider this as well, Bruges had one of the better, best defenders suspended Three or four of the players unavailable due to positive COVID tests. And yet, Zenit played like the team in the first half, I thought, who were the side who had all the disruption pre-game. You know, admittedly, Zenit themselves had Malcolm and uh, Douglas Santos unavailable. They were two pretty decent, uh, pretty big misses, really. But ultimately, end of the day, I thought Zenit were just tipping in that first half. They didn't play well. Um, it was cagey, it was slow at least Bruges, even though they had their injuries and I will credit Bruges, one thing I will say to Bruges is um, they played better than I expected them to do and um, the young guy who scored at the end um, forgot his name escapes me but um, I've only had a very good game in midfield um, but yeah, Zenit, they just looked very very tipid, I don't know what it was um, They were like Hanu said I thought there was too much direct passing to Zuba like almost just trying to use him just solely as a target man and you know he's a complete forward you can get the ball to him and utilise him in other ways it it almost really took with Zenit when they went a goal down to to finally start getting into the game and start playing you know it seemed like that finally woke them up it was like oh right we're in a game here well you know you can't underestimate Bruges that they're a decent side like I said that they on paper Zenit should at home beat Bruges but then you've got to remember, Bruges nearly beat Real Madrid last season in the group stage of the Champions League. So you can't take any opponent for granted. Um, I thought, yeah, just really insipid in that first half. I wasn't impressed with it. Um, and it took them to go a goal down before they started playing. Um, and, you know, they had some chances, wasted them in the second half and paid the penalty for it. As for Mac, well, he's under pressure now. I mean, I won't go as far yet as, um, as sacking him, but 
there was definitely an explosion of rumours on Twitter, like flying. Well, not rumours, explosion of like discontent on Twitter after the game, wasn't there? And I mean, I've heard reports on Twitter before about people being a bit unhappy at the performance on the Samak in some domestic games, like against Lokomotiv early in the season when they drew nil-nil, when they lost against Dinamo. There was disappointment with the ways that it played, like too defensive, too many long balls, this kind of thing. But but there was a real outpour of discontent with Samak after the game. And um, it's, I agree with you, it's definitely on him. And I won't go as far as saying um, get rid of him just yet, but he's definitely under pressure now. I think any kind of um, honeymoon period is over now. And um, the problem with Zenit with this loss is they've given themselves a real uphill task now because, you know, Dortmund away is their next game. And if they lose that, then even third place in the group's looking unlikely. They're going to probably then have to beat mm-hmm. Lazio at home and then beat Bruges away and then possibly even Dortmund at home to have any chance. And that's not easy. Really, now Zenit have kind of got to get something from all the remaining five games. Um, they've no le- leeway, no leeway now. They've no room margin for error. So um, he's under pressure. And, if, if you know, a second straight season without European football post-Christmas, the only way then he could keep his job is by winning the league. And even that might not be enough. You know, I mean, we've seen in the past how... PSG have been ruthless with their managers, you know, when Laurent Blanc won a domestic treble, quarterfinals of Champions League and still was dismissed. You know, performance in Europe is, is important for, for Zenit's hierarchy and I feel that he's under pressure now for sure. Yeah, he certainly is under pressure. And even though we have all put our weight, at least in the short term, behind Semak, and we all have mentioned before that we think that it could it could be premature sacking now to at least theorise and have a little bit of fun with it. Um, Hanu, do you have any potential ideas on a replacement or any what any Senate fans and the social media and so on have been suggesting? I mean, Sam Allardyce is available, so I think that might be one that... Uh... <laughs> but, I mean, honestly, it's it's looking really bleak if they do decide to sack Samak because it's fine if you sack Samak, but the thing is, are your replacements... First, viable, and second, are they going to be good enough? And I, there was a tweet, you know, I basically asked people, who would your replacement be for Semak? And there were people, in my opinion, hopeless optimists, saying that they would try and get Allegri, they would try and get Pochettino, Valverde, Spalletti. And I just think there is an absolutely 0% chance of any of those coming. Maybe Spalletti yeah. at a push. But I don't think any of those other managers would try and come in. Anyway, if you go... Beyond that, you have names like Silvino, Jardim, Mark Hughes, Montella, Jurgen Klinsmann. You basically get to very like there's six or seven very high level managers, and after that, it's just a bunch of uh, mid table forward managers. And I really don't think you would presume that Zenit look abroad is the thing, right? And if you're looking abroad, there isn't much that there isn't much that they have to choose from. I don't think uh, a subpar or a bit of a high name, a bit of a famed manager, I don't think that's going to work given Russia's conditions. And I think inside Russia, I don't think there's many that can replace Samak. Maybe a, a club legend, maybe someone who's inexperienced, but again, that is also a, quite a precarious position to put yourself in, especially with Javier Ribalta possibly leaving. We know that Ribalta and Samak work well together. So I think the, though Samak's performances haven't been great at all in Europe, maybe now even in, in Russia. I think he's just too important of a cog in Zenit's hierarchy right now and in that entire team for him to get sacked. I think if I was if I was the Zenit president, I think I would, regardless of how this season goes, I think I would give Semak some time to improve as a manager. At least give him another, you know, one and a half season and then see where he takes from there. Because I think it's just too risky to sack him or I think it's just too risky, honestly, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I don't. I, I honestly, I, I see in the same. I, I saw the same tweets, and I thought, this is so unrealistic. Like this is not going to happen. There was some. I mean, like I, I can say from a Spartak perspective, when, when the when Kononov lost his job, and and everyone was looking around for who could be the replacement. Well, the the two Russians were Stani, who's not leaving Russia anytime soon unless it's a disaster at the Euros, and then do you want that? Berdiev, who, God, no, I don't want him in any of the top teams. Let's just end that there. And nobody else in Russia, as, as you mentioned, Hanu, is anywhere near as good as Semak. 
And those, like, you've got potential, like Anatoly Tomashuk, who's the current assistant coach at Zenit, Zenit, very highly thought of within the club, been very successful as a player, very successful in the coaching staff. He could take over, but what's the point? He's, he's, he's one of Semak's best mates and has been. They were, they were roommates together when they were both at Zenit 10 years ago. Now, why would what would be the point in doing that? If Zenit are going to get rid of Semak, it has to be for a big-name European manager. And those who are available aren't going to Zenit unless it's for a ridiculous amount of money. And those who are available, well, what's the point? There's not, they're not as good. So it's that case of, well... If he is doing so badly, then look who can replace. And there's nobody. Richard, what's your thoughts on a potential replacement? Yeah, um, I feel one name. I think you could possibly throw. I mean, we're all hypothetical. I do kind of hope he. I do hope he turns this around. And you know, we're we're dealing in the hypotheticals now, and it, there's still a long way in the season to go yet. And you know, if he wins the league, then I think he probably. I think he probably will. He will keep his job for another year at least, um, regardless of Champions League results. However, um, I think one name to throw in the hat is, um, if they did decide to do it, is uh, the young coach at Granada, Martinez. Um, I've been very impressed with him, the way he has been performing with such um, a small budgeted team in La Liga. You know, he's got them playing well, scoring goals. I think that's what they'd have to do. I say some of the names being banded around, like Pochettino and Allegri, are just are just plain silly. They're not going to come to to Zenit. You know, Pochettino could get a, a job at any of England's top five or six if they if they got rid of their manager. Could get the Man United job, for example. PSG job might become available soon. So I think those those suggestions are just way off the mark. Um, but you know, if they if they were to get rid of Smart, I think they'd probably have to go with a youngish you know coach from abroad who's been impressing the mid table top five club in um, sorry a mid table. Um, top five league club you know I think like Martinez at Granada I think would be a decent show maybe even take a, a copy from um, Shakhtar's book and possibly look for Portugal for coaches you know they went and got um, Paulo Fonseca and then he went to Roma and they've got and Luis Castro looks quite a promising young coach now that they've got there who you know um, orchestrated that win against Real Madrid on um, on Tuesday night on Wednesday night sorry Hanu um, but um, but yeah it's um <laughs> I think that's the model that they'd have to they'd have to probably try and follow if if that's what they were going to do, you know. And that Martinez would fit the bill for that. But I mean, I, I'm hopeful he will learn Samak and and turn this around. Um, I mean, you know, I don't think he's his job's massively under threat just yet, but he's under pressure. But um, but if it did come to the worst, I think if it was come to worst, I think that's that's what Zenit would do. Like someone like Martinez, someone like that, a young up and coming coach with some potential, possibly look like copied Spartak and Dinamo's model and go to Germany, maybe even, you know, something like that. But I don't think Pochettino or Allegri are realistic. They're just not going to come to Zenit. Yeah. Yeah, I echo those thoughts entirely. And I think that'll do for the Zenit part of this, or the Zenit and Europe part anyway. And to finish off just quickly, we've got more RPL action over the weekend and we had some more last weekend after the return from the international break. So I'm going to just do some quick kicks on each of the games. So we'll start off with Spartak versus Kimki, and Spartak won that game 3-2 after actually being behind at one point and performing pretty woefully. Uh, of course, you could put your bet- Betty House on it at the... Uh, Riazan Merzov would have scored the opening goal against Spartak and he truly went and done so. And to be fair to him, he had a a better game than I'd seen him have at all in a Spartak shirt. Um, But it's one of those awkward and difficult results where it's all about just getting the three points on the board. And a year ago, they would have absolutely crumbled in that match. They would not have got anything from that game. You just know for a fact that but as soon as Mirzov scored, the heads would have dropped and they would have lost, went on to lose probably quite convincingly, just as they did towards the back end of last season, quite a few occasions. But the mentality that Ponce has got, uh, Tedesco, sorry, has got the, the team in right now is pretty strong and they turned it around, goals from a penalty from Kokorin and then a pair of goals from Ezekiel Ponce and Jordan Larson, all three strikers scoring. Can't be much happier than that. Young lads playing. Uh, Stepan Nogania-san made his full team debut. Uh, Dmitry Markitasov got minutes again. And then those two with uh, more youngsters like uh, Young Mirinov all featured midweek in a cup defeat to Yensei, which is embarrassing and a bit crap, but they were already through the play- through the next round anyway, so 
didn't really matter at the end of the days. Um, Richard, you caught up with the uh, Siska Dinamo and the, the friendly derby, as it's known as. How, how did that game go? <laughs> still a derby, though, isn't it? Um, <laughs> still pretty, um, <laughs> pretty, um, oh, pretty fierce rivalry, still, I guess. But, um, but no, yeah. Um, any Moscow derby is it's always quite um, in, intense battle. Um, no, um, I think Suska deserved to win the game. I feel that um, they were the better side of the two, and it was starting to come together nicely. They obviously play in the Europa League, and in ten minutes' time, they kick off against Wolfsburger from Austria. And they went into um, that, and they've gone into that game in the, on the back of a, a good result. You know, I thought they they had a good game. Konstantin Kachayev, I thought, played well again. Um, they're sort of, they're starting to settle now. I think Siska after a couple of after an iffy 2019-20 season, where you know they probably could have done better, and there was question marks about Goncharenko. There's, there's probably one or two, but they're coming together now, Siska. I think, and um, there's a good performance from them. Um, Dinamo, I think, are still just waiting, obviously, for Sandro Schwartz to arrive in Moscow. I think when he arrives and takes up his role as Dinamo manager, I think it's going to be this weekend, I think. Not not for this weekend's game, but I think he arrives at the club this weekend and starts training next week. So, I think, based on what I've heard. Um, so, fingers crossed, hopefully he can then upgrade and improve the performances. But, yeah, I kind of expected Suska to win that game. Um Dinamo still a bit of a work in progress. Need need some work on the defence because um, they were cut apart for Siska's goals. Um, but Nicola Moro got off the mark and he's been improving recently for Dinamo, I think. He had a, a bit of a slow start, but hopefully Schwartz can un, um, unlock his um, potential going forward. Um, but yeah, good win for Siska. And, um, you know, hopefully, fingers crossed tonight, they can... They can get a win for for the for the league against um, against Wolfsburg away. They've, Wolfsburg has had a poor start actually in Austria, so um, it's a it's a chance for Suska, even though they're carrying a few injuries themselves. It's a chance, um, and they've gone into that game in a good frame of mind after beating Dinamo. And Hanu, anything in particular in Zenit that's coming up soon with the game at the weekend, and then of course uh, the Dortmund match next week. Yeah, I think it's going to be a very important week for Semak as well as the entire Zenit team. I think Rubin and Roslutsky are a, a different animal. They have started to come into their own. They have a, a dynamic squad, a young squad with some goal scorers with, with a lot of... Um, with Last season, they scored like 11 goals in 30 games. This season, I think they've already surpassed that. So I think it's going to be a tricky game. That in lieu of, of the Dortmund game. Dortmund, of course, lost their first game to Lazio. And they'll be looking to to bounce back. They've you know they have Erling Haaland who on his day can score seven goals. So and Jaden Sancho and Thorgan Azrad and all of those guys. So I think it's going to be a very important important week for Zenit is is all. And how did how do you think that Wendell played when he came on in, in the last game for Zenit? Do you think he could possibly get a look in a start against Dortmund? I think he should start against Dortmund. I honestly think that uh, Zenit need to play with a three-man midfield and figure out a way to get make it work, I guess. Uh, I know sacking off uh, one of Zubaur as Moon seems like an, an impossible thing to think of, but I think Semak sooner rather than later has to experiment. And I think either you replace Osdoev or um, because Barrios is probably the most important player in that team along with Zuba, you can't replace him. But I, th- I think I would like to see Wendell start because he made a, he made a few good passes. He's uh, he's not one of those players who just plays side sideward passes and, and ends it off. And I think I w- it would be nice to see him start, even though, even if it's on the weekend against Ruben, it'd be nice. Yeah, yeah, and definitely in Malcolm's absence, obviously with his, with his injury, which which did uh, contribute to the to the defeat midweek. Uh, and I'll quickly jump in here with uh, Arsenal Tula, who who hosted Ural. Now. Arsenal have lined up in a quite a, a new look. Arsenal really, with uh, obviously Abdul Kadiri back from from Dinamo Kiev. We mentioned that a couple of weeks ago how influential he's been. But but up top they signed, of course, uh, Kirill Panchenka from Tambov and Luka Jordovic from Lokomotiv. And those two, I thought, provided quite a, a good bit of bite in Arsenal's team that they've been missing of late with uh, Yevgeny, uh, Yevgeny Lutsenka out injured. And with Lomovitsky on the wing, uh, Kangwa, and then Kadiri and Kings Kangwa on the bench, even and, and Vladislav Pantaleev pulling the strings from midfield. I think Arsenal are quietly one of are building one of or have built one of 
the the best teams in the bottom half of the RPL and and really took Ural to the sword. Ural dominated the ball and didn't do anything with it whatsoever. They couldn't break Arsenal down. Arsenal took the took the lead through a good goal, but Ural only they did actually score right at the end. A young lad who came on and had a very good game. His name escapes me. I apologise to him for that. But yet, yet it was his. He had. A, he was thinking his league debut, and he, he scored, but it was was well offside, and rightfully so. Correct decision, good decision. But I was I was very impressed with Arsenal and how they, how their the manager Sergei Popadli's turned it around a little bit, and they have got together what seems to be the core of what could be a solid lower mid-table squad. Uh, Richard, is there any games in particular that you're looking out for this weekend? Yeah, I think um, to echo to echo um, Hanu's thoughts there, I think um, that's a toughie for Zenit, you know. They're coming off a poor result. Um, and Rubin, you know, Slutsky, Leonard Slutsky's starting to get a tune out of them now. You know, they're playing well. I think some of their injuries, I think, have subsided. They're, they're back now. Um, and I think that's going to be a tough game for Zenit. That's not going to be easy against Rubin. You back them to win, but because it's at home. But, you know, they're, they're, they've got to go into that Dortmund game in a good frame of mind, you know, with a positive result. And, Rubino are awkward opponents. At least what you could say with Lokomotiv is, is that they're at home against um they're at home against Rator. So, you know, I think they're probably in seventh heaven with that because, you know, what best way to prepare for Bayern Munich at home, you know, what's gonna be, you know, probably like, like I said earlier, parking um the the truck in front of goal, never mind the bus. Um so they've got Rotor, so you'd think two, three early goals in that game by get a couple of goals up by half time and then rest key players, you know, because Rotor like they're offering very little so it's a nice little game for Loco there um, to you know get themselves ready for Bayern Munich other games to look out for I think um, Dinamo Sochi could be quite interesting um, you know that mm-hmm. battle in, of the teams just below the top 4 or 5 and then um, Atmat versus Ufa I think it's going to be quite interesting because Ufa they really really badly need a win I mean they need a point from that at minimum really because uh, they're, they're struggling like crazy uh, the window wasn't great for them and you know I think since Gazizov left, they've looked a bit rudderless, really, as a club. Um, and it, it could be a long season for them. If they lose and lose badly against that match, I think they're in a real relegation scrap. So it's going to be an important, important match for them, that. But yeah, Spartak, Krasnodar is the game of the week. And um, I'm looking forward to, to that yeah. one. Yeah, of course. And everyone keep an eye on, on next week because it is Krasnodar, Spartak on Saturday and Ural Tambov down at the bottom. Um bottom of the table, which is a big game for Tambov, the most irrelevant team in Russian history. But of course, now that's the end of the Russian Football News podcast. Uh, keep an eye on the site, russianfootballnews.com, for some, some upcoming pieces, including a, a long look at uh, Alexander Dukov's uh, annual State of Union football address. And then another one, on Kavi- uh, an analysis from David Sanson on Kavisha Kavataselia. Uh, Richard, what's your... Twitter handle and where can everyone find you online? You can find me at, at richdpike89 at richdpike89 on Twitter. And Hanu? Yes, uh, sorry, I, I forgot to mention this, right? My Twitter handle is um, at h4nuu. You can you can find it. I'm, I'm quite active on Russian football Twitter. That's fine. I don't care about that. But I do have a very interesting trivia fact that I want to humor you guys with before we end the podcast. Okay, so So bear with me, right? So, if you look at the most, the top hundred most valuable Russian players on transfer market or whatever website you use, James, how many of those do you think play abroad? Top hundred most valuable Russian footballers outside of Russia. How many of the, how many do you think play outside of Russia? Is that current or current? Time? Yeah, no, right now, right now. Oh God. Outside of Russia, knowing Russian players, I'd say it's single figures. Okay, uh, Richard, do you do? You, what's your guess? Richard, you there? Yeah, I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. Don't worry about it. Right. So it is actually just four players in the top 100, right? And why this why this figure is insane? Is because there is there is not a single nation in the top fifty five of the FIFA rankings that has such such a low figure. The only one is Qatar, and there is only one nation in Europe which has a lower figure than that, and that is Malta, who are ranked one hundred and eighty six in the FIFA rankings. 
fucking My Jesus. God. Then they didn't expect it to be bad, bad to do. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that, that, that is, is my that is the issue. Um, Dalek Azayev has obviously chipped around himself in the window for for a move abroad and then didn't go to Zenit and then was linked to England, linked to Spain, linked to Germany and then was even linked to the championship in England at one point and then linked back to Loco and ended up resigning with Zenit. And a lot of the reason for that is because his father's his agent and didn't agree with him going abroad. It's just absolutely ridiculous. But that is that is quite a startling fact and startling figure and on that bombshell. Goodbye for now. Веди его, беги, точнее его ударь, но мяч берет ноги решительный вратарь. Не напрасно футбольное поле, самых ловких и смелых плечов. Здесь нужны тренировка и воля, быстрота, увлечение, расчет.